What's up, guys? This week on the podcast, we've got Mark Tanner live from Sydney, Australia. Uh, Mark is the co-founder and COO of the company. Uh, Quiller does proposal software, uh, integrates with HubSpot really well. It's a really interesting company. It's taken proposals uh, to the next level. It's re- really reimagining how sales teams do proposals. Um, his software is growing uh, like crazy, the company, um, and they've just raised uh, another uh, Series A round uh, back in April or May, I think. Um, but either way, it's going to be a really, really interesting conversation. Um, we go through uh, talking about distributed teams. We talk about uh, raising money, getting started, uh, distribution channels for software, loads and loads of uh, interesting stuff. In the in the middle of the uh, the conversation, it gets the audio gets a little bit patchy, but it comes back strong after about two minutes. So I thought I'd leave that in, um, just because there's good value there too. All right, thanks very much. Enjoy. Welcome to the Shark Pod, the podcast that explores business and lifestyle design in Ireland and beyond. And now, live from Greystone Studios, here are your hosts. Luke Curry and Mark Baker. What is up, Shark Nation? Welcome to another podcast here, uh, live from Greystone Studios. Uh, we're live from. Uh, we've got a, our uh, our guest today is from Sydney, and he's uh, he's he's beaming in here. How are you doing, Mark Tanner? Yeah, I'm very well. Very happy to be here. So, Mark, you're very welcome. Uh, we've got Mark Baker out there in Glenageary as well. How are you doing, Mark Baker? Good, good. Welcome, Mark. Yeah. Um, so Mark Tanner is the co-founder and COO of Quiller. Uh, Quiller is a proposal software that is uh, integrates with HubSpot very well, and that's kind of the reason why I reached out to Mark. Um, I had been, I'd been frustrated on a couple of deals that I had over the summer around um, around trying to. Uh, get some sort of third party to to work with some of our um, our customers that needed kind of a higher level of proposal software and this uh mark tanner this has been a pain in the you know what for about a year for me trying to figure out how do you do this in a professional way how do we do this in maybe not even a professional way but try to get a proposal software that really uh you know sets our our, our clients apart when they're doing their um they're kind of the final leg of the sales uh cycle when I when I work with my uh, partners and I work with their kind of end users as well, so the people who are actually going to be using HubSpot, people who are, people who are going to be trying to close deals uh, with HubSpot, you'd be surprised at how poor the um, their their take on proposals is. Um, like a lot of times, it's just like an email with a pricing list, really stuff that's not really going to talk to the people. So how did you so? How did you, one, if you wouldn't mind, give us a quick overview of what Quiller is for the people who don't know. Um, and then two, how did you come up with this idea to try to modernize this po- proposal uh, business? Yeah, awesome. Um, so, and to be honest, yeah, I mean, it's going to latch on to that thing you said about like sort of the final leg. I mean, I think that there is, I think HubSpot speaks to this, like I'll, I'll sort of wrap this all into a thing, a, a neat little bow if I can, but like, HubSpot and there's, you know, a whole bunch of other tools out there that really, like there really is like a science as well as an art to like the top of funnel, like how you think about that. There's a whole bunch of processes from like landing pages, from like, you know, inbound and content and that whole strategy and sort of you built this nice funnel and you're getting all the way through and then you get to the end and it's just like these rubbish PDFs and PowerPoints and like 
off-brand, you know, pretty crappy looking, kind of quite hard to make, like quite finicky to sort of make, make, make like work well. And like the level of sort of difference between like the bottom of funnel, which is like critical to like closing the sale and sort of making that whole process happen. You put all this work at the top and then like this final thing at the bottom is just like rubbish. Yeah. So um, I, I, we are strongly aligned on that side. So look, um, so the, the basic idea behind Quilla really is, there's sort of like two core things. It's like one meta idea and then like the specific part within sort of the sales and, and marketing universe. So the, the big idea is just generally that like files suck on the internet. So like Word, PowerPoint, PDF, they're all amazing tools, but they were all created pre-web. They're all from like the 80s and 90s. And, you know, somewhat due to the glorious Microsoft monopoly, they are all still with us today. Um, and they, yeah, they just suck. Like there's this interesting thing you have of like, we think about our world of like HubSpot and, and Slack and Dropbox and like all these other sort of interesting tools out there that all integrate and pull in, you know, you, you expect like, oh, you know, HubSpot and like, we, we use HubSpot for our CRM, we use Zero for our accounting software. Like, of course, those two will integrate together and that will yeah. be like nice and easy and straightforward. And like files throughout this entire process, whether they're PDF, PowerPoint, Word, whatever, even like, you know, the, the, the G Suite equivalents of them are just stuck in this sort of weird offline sort of file only world. And so the sort of first like core thing from us was really around like, you know, there's been a whole bunch of, if you sort of look at it historically, there's been a whole bunch of interesting companies that have done cool stuff in terms of like trying to solve this problem for files sucking in the age of the internet, whether it's like Dropbox and Box making it so you can host them. Mm -hmm. um, then you have like, you know, uh, companies that sort of do wrappers. So like I said, like DocuSign is a classic example. It's still a PDF, but you can kind of have like the eSign layer sort of this sort of webby thing wrapped on top or there used to be tools called like you know, ClearSlide or DocSend that do like analytics or something like that. Like our core thesis was like the web, it's, it's the web. Like the web is the future. And so if you can make a way for someone to be able to create a beautiful, simple web page as easily as you would a document and sort of start to bring in really, you know, all of the sort of tips and tricks of the modern web, including like e-commerce and all that sort of stuff as to how you think about like what's possible inside that sort of webby document, like with buttons that do things and like, you know, data that syncs between different sources of truth and little notifications. Like we have a classic one right now that we're working on, which is like, if someone starts the accept process for your contract, but doesn't finish it, well, like, of course you want to be notified. You want to be like, hey, like, um, you know, give this person a call right now. And like, maybe you want to have that like texted to your phone. So like, anyway, so that was sort of like the, the sort of big, the big idea behind Quilla and what we do. And so really at its base, we're a tool for creating you know, sales and marketing cloud, especially proposals, as you say, like proposals, quotes, presentations, pitch decks, et cetera. You can, it's a, it's a document platform. You can use it. You can use it for your, you know, your birthday party invite if you want. Yeah. But, um, but so we sort of do that um, and, and really, you know, the, so the idea, so to, to, to tack back to the other thing, sorry, I'm rambling, but um, the idea came from, you know, my business partner, Dylan, my co-founder, you know, he had an agency, um, an agency business uh, that was, you know, uh, digital and design. And so he did a lot of software work. He did a lot of design work. They did some marketing stuff and branding. Um, but they were very much a digital heavy shop. And this is like 2011, 2012. And he was like, 
I did all my pricing in Excel, I do my copy in Word, I then take them together into InDesign, which is like such a punish to use, but it allows you to do some really beautiful stuff. I then turn them to the client, they then want a whole bunch of changes, I have to rip it all out and kind of rebuild it again, and it's like super slow, it's hard to reuse your best bits of work from previous things, blah, blah. Anyway, he just decided, stuff this, and he started hand coding websites for every proposal he made. So he was like a great like web developer, but it was still taking like three days to like build, you know, each new proposal, which is a completely insane thing to do, yeah. except he started winning like 80% of them. Okay. And so he would just be like, and he was so doing work for like Ogilvy, Saatchi and Saatchi, um, the Victorian government in Australia, this like quite famous local theatre in Sydney. Um, and so he sort of started on this path and, and the sort of turning point for him came the MD of Saatchi and Saatchi New Zealand. They spoke in the morning, you know, Dylan had made a whole bunch of little bash scripts to kind of, happily automated so it went down from a few days to a few hours um but he sent this guy a proposal um that was a, web, a little mini website and they'd spoke in the morning he got it in the afternoon and the guy called him and was like how how on earth did you do this this is a product can i use it and that sort of yeah. started the path down to where we are today it's it's so uh it's so interesting as well because there's something that i saw in one of the youtube videos of you guys explaining uh, the business and it, you guys mentioned that there's a there's a time risk involved of uh, preparing proposals, doing um, RFPs, RFIs, all those types <coughs> of things. And so, Mark Baker, um, so in, in software, a lot of times you do like a proposal, they might ask you for a, a proposal where it's going to take you like two days. You don't really have as much context. You might be um, competing. It, well, you are competing with other vendors. So if there's any edge that you can have other than just sending over a spreadsheet with a load of uh, question and answers, that's that's not going to sell anything. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It doesn't give you the kind of the soul of what we're trying to do here, um, especially uh, HubSpot because we're although we're a, a, a big company now, um, we're still um, the the new guys in the the CRM space. You know. Uh, we're competing with the, the kind of the big uh, sales forces of this uh, this world still. Um, so the point is here that we want to make sure that if we're going to be putting any time into something, we're going to maybe stack the deck a little bit in our favor by having the having kind of a a, a good looking tool to to use. When I say good looking, like a aesthetically pleasing, Mark, I think you, Mark Baker, I think you'd uh, appreciate that with all the art stuff, right? Yeah, I, I look after all our branding and all the kind of creative and marketing side in my company and yeah when i looked up the product it made complete sense to me and um, i'm sure there's lots of little bits about it i don't know that are even make it even better than i think it is but um yeah we were you know for our proposals they're they're powerpoint admittedly and which turned into pdf and um, took me a while to create them and they're not very tailored to, to each client we're literally replacing certain sectors with, with the word for another sector and stuff like that. So yeah. Yeah. I definitely think a recruitment company pitching for business and, and trying to sell who they are and who the people are, which is the most important thing in recruitment. And uh, you know what we represent something like, like what Quillico provide is uh would be really beneficial for recruitment companies. Well, so I think, I think so much, I think like on that side that we actually had, to be honest, like we actually had a, you know, a bit of a focus on recruiting, and we have a little section of our site that said like for recruiters, which we've kind of pulled back on a little bit because COVID has not been especially friendly to, to the recruiting business. But um, but like there's this funny thing we sort of discovered with recruiting, which was like, you know, so Quill obviously is heavily used by sales teams, but like we would sort of have some recruiters come to the platform, we probably got about 
and maybe about 150 companies at the moment on that side and sort of like from like you know, technical recruiting, exec recruiting, like a whole sort of range of things. But the funny thing we sort of realized was like in talking to a whole bunch of them, which was like you know, running a recruiting firm, there's actually like three sales processes going on. There's like, I'm pitching you, I'm pitching like, you know, HubSpot, HubSpot needs some recruiters. I understand your proposal. Here's how we work. Here's some work we've done before. Here's some testimonials, blah, blah, But then it's like, HubSpot's like, great, let's, let's do it. You then need to like take HubSpot and like pitch them out to candidates and like actually get candidates excited about the opportunities that are available. And then like get those candidates and then like pitch them back to HubSpot. Like one of the things we found throughout this whole process was like, so Quillity is a web page. Like, as soon as you just embrace the web and just say you're gonna move away from files, you're like, oh, like, well, we'll just have analytics. Like, we'll just know, have they opened the page, how many times they looked at it, what section, how much time. And for recruiters, there was this big thing of like, yes, the proposal part is like kick ass, but like, if I can send out, like, let's say I've got this opportunity for HubSpot to go join Luke's team and uh, you know, be a partner manager in, in EMEA, and you send it out to like you know 15 people. Well, you might come in on Monday morning and be like, okay, well, these five haven't opened it. So like they're probably not really interested. These five have opened it once, looked at it for a minute or so, you know, da da da. And then these five have opened it multiple times, you know, you know, for like you know over half an hour or whatever it is. And you can sort of have this feel of like who's hot, who's like warmish or cool or whatever, who's like probably, I mean, maybe you might fall off the people who haven't opened it, but like maybe kind of dead. And then like the same thing with the company of like. If you send a, a client, you know, a bit of info to the company, it's a web page, and you're like, they are opening this one, like, they've opened it 20 times, different IP addresses are opening it, like, they're forwarding it around the office. You can sort of, sometimes, again, a lot of recruiters say, like, sometimes you will not get that useful feedback from, mm. from clients as to like what they're actually interested in. But when you sort of see, like, oh, well, these three profiles, they're like, they're all over, and the rest, they're kind of ignoring. You're like, okay, well, that's a useful clue and whatever else. So anyway, it's, it's sort of this interesting space of, that was not really, to be frank, the tool, like we didn't build the tool for recruiters. But it's interesting that like recruiting really is like, and actually I think this is why so many, I know like HubSpot Sydney, so many of their junior reps are recruiters because like recruiters, you are selling in so many different directions all the time. And it really is such a powerful way to learn to sell. Anyway, I'm gonna stop ranting again. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, it, I think it does align well. No, I think it's interesting as well because the it means that uh, like you, you, your recruiters, Mark, can spend um, as much time as as possible on people who are interested uh, in different yeah. things, right? Um, but the maybe go going back to the kind of origin story. You were you were working in Google in in the states, is that correct? And then did you always think that you're going to do a, a startup back back in Sydney, or was that something that it was kind of just um, uh, you know? kind of good luck or not good luck but good um good fortune to to come in contact with your co-founder or was this always the plan yeah so i um i was really i mean i think that everyone sort of has this something but i was just very very lucky in my career um that a few things sort of went the way they did um so like i had no idea what i wanted to be you know, when I grew up, like, I went and did, went and did like, an arts degree at, at university, which I love, like, you know, history and politics and a bit of philosophy, why not? But, um, but I came out of that being, like, uh, uh, I suppose I should go, I think, like, I applied for a bunch of consulting jobs, I ended up interning at one of a pretty good firm. Um, but then, luckily enough for me, like, uh, I sort of stumbled into this job working at this e-book startup in 
2008, so 2008-9, which is when ebooks were just exploding because the Kindle and the iPhone both came out in 2007. And ebooks have been talked about for a long time as this sort of maybe thing, but then all of a sudden it was like, oh, now's the time that's actually really happening. And so the first year was that company. Basically, they had this bit of software that like um, there were these five file formats that you could have ebooks in. So there was like uh, and Microsoft had one, BlackBerry had one, um, there was an open source format, Amazon had one, and I'm totally forgetting the fifth. But anyway, you'd pay money to take a PDF or a Word doc into each of these, like one-to-one, because you have to pay the same fee five times in a row. And this company had some software, which was like, convert it once into this middle format, and then it would, the, the computer would automatically do all the rest for you. And like the first year there, it was unbelievable. Like you were just like, we were cold calling people all the time, go through, explain, show the price, close the deal, move on. Nice. Like we just like, we grew like a weed. The second year, it became increasingly clear that the cost of conversion was going to like hit zero, which is what it is now. Like like Word and all those various tools have like export to Kindle. Like, and you can sort of just like automatically do all this stuff for free via software. Um, and so there was this sort of moment of glory and then a sort of realization of, oh crap, going to become commoditized. And that company has amazingly pivoted a few you're, times. In this you're breaking business. up a little bit there. We, it, it sounds a little bit like you're underwater. Is it? Oh, <laughs> little, sorry. Do it again? Try it. Um, oh, I can hear you now. Test. Perfect. Sorry about that. Do you want me to go back a little bit? Uh, no, we got you for the last uh, maybe 20 seconds. <laughs> we'll, we'll edit that bit out. No problem. Okay. So okay. so we got you till uh, export to, to Kindle. Anyway, yeah. so... So basically, the long story short was I was um, so I was very lucky to work in a startup. I mean, at startups at that stage, I don't know what it was like in Ireland, but it, but in like 2008, nine, you know, we got funding because one of the founders knew a rich person, and the rich person wrote us a check for a million dollars. Like okay. that, that was <laughs> like I'm sure there were some VCs around and whatever else, but the ecosystem was so so early and so small. Um, but luckily through that, I got exposure to tech, I got exposure to ebooks in this space. Google was looking to hire someone to basically run their, their ebooks partnership as they got ready to launch Android and basically Android and, and iPhone having this huge competition to like build out the content suite, what became Google Play versus iTunes. Um, and so I joined that team doing ebook deals across Australia and New Zealand and Southeast Asia, and then sort of did like the magazine and the, the Google News stand equivalents of that. Cool. Um, and sort of went and joined in, in New York as well. It's it's interesting. That's it's interesting story. That kind of two thousand seven, two thousand eight time. I, like it's interesting to have somebody from the outside who doesn't really know that much uh, about Ireland or what was going on then. Like uh, just to give you some context about how the the boom time in Ireland and how I would imagine I I wasn't uh, in business at that, at that stage, but I would imagine if you were looking for money, there'd be uh, something to it'd be pretty easy to to raise. But there was a, one stat that I heard on another podcast that um, so we're you know at the time there's probably three and a half million people total in Ireland um, in two thousand eight. And there was something like 186 private uh, helicopters that were registered that year in 2008, and there hasn't been any since. That's, that's, so there was that was just the pinnacle of the the kind of 
uh, at the first oh. kind of boom that we've ever had, right? Um, so then there was a, a prolonged uh, kind of reche- recession there. We were doing, and before 2020, I remember me and Mark were starting this podcast and we were, we were so positive about 2020. This is it. This is Ireland's time. We're going to push on. We're, you know, everything's coming together. Uh, and then it's been a little bit of a, a bumpy road as, as a lot of people, obviously a lot of people uh, are experiencing as well. Um, but we're, we're, I think we're doing quite well. Um, compared to some uh, countries that are big on tourism and stuff like that but uh but i digress okay so what's the so once you get uh get started this is what me and mark always talk about when we talk about to like kind of founders of companies as well when you get started are you are you kind of uh bootstrapping at this time or did you go straight in because of maybe connections that you had in the industry to say you know uh we need you know a few bob just to get going or wh- what was the what was the first couple of months yeah so so um so look, I mean, and sort of this is going to wrap up the previous question a little bit as well, which is like, so so I was, I knew I wanted to be involved in the startup. I was loving my time in Google in New York, but but also in a funny way, the Android versus iPhone thing kind of hit a natural kind of conclusion. They they both won in their own way. Mm-hmm. Um, I was back in town for a wedding in Sydney, bumped into this old friend of mine who I'd known for ages, Dylan, my co-founder, and he was he started talking about this business idea, and then he starts talking about this investor. And then I started talking about an investor and it turns out this investor who I hadn't even met yet. So I was basically meeting angel investors with the hope that they would introduce me to interesting founders so that I could find a way back into early stage startup life. Yeah. Um, and hilariously, this investor had tried to match make Dylan and I, even though we'd been hanging out since we were teenagers. So it was like this complete amazing serendipity. To be honest, so we, we got together and we started working um, I think like two or three days a week out of Dylan's house when I first got back to Sydney and that sort of became four days and five days. And then we sort of, we sort of committed and I put in not much, but like, you know, a little bit of cash to like get things set up and incorporate and blah, blah, blah. Um, we, so we had this, so because this investor had tried to matchmake us, um, one day he just gets in touch and says, oh, can I come for a coffee? And then sort of says, hey, I'd like to put in a hundred grand into your business. Nice. Um, because he had this little micro sort of seed fund that was just investing in founders at that stage, which has actually been a very successful fund. Um, and so we were like, well, that would allow us to like hire another engineer and like, you know, do some stuff. And so we did that. And then we, so to be honest, we kind of like got on the sort of venture capital train relatively early although i would say that in australia and again we're interested to hear about ireland but like in australia it was very very much you needed to there were very few companies that were allowed to sort of be valley companies and just like hey go and get you know a million users it was very much like prove you can make money uh, even if it's a little bit it doesn't have to be a huge amount but like prove you can you can actually generate some real like um you know monthly recurring revenue and so we, you know, very quickly after that 100K, did a little angel round for about another 400 or so, mm-hmm. and then sort of managed to get like, I think we sort of got to about fifteen dollars or $20,000 in like monthly recurring revenue off the back of that. And then from that, we raised um, like a seed round, which was like um, about 1 mil US uh, from actually the European investors, this, this group called Point Nine, who are awesome. And they're just this, um, they're a group out of Berlin and they, all they do is invest in um, in seed stage SaaS companies. Nice. And so they just, they were first money in Typeform, they were money in Zendesk, um, Algolia, Front, um, Unbounce, like a whole bunch of great companies. Wow. And um, we were very, very happy to work with them and very lucky to work with them. But that was sort of, to be honest, 
somewhat by accident. We kind of sort of went down that venture adventure um, sort of straight up from the start. It's it's very important as well for the like um, people who are looking to uh, start SaaS businesses where they if the goal instead of just raising money, the, like you said, the goal really should be try to make some money first. Like if you can prove that you're getting twenty twenty grand recur, uh, recurring revenue, it's a real business then, right? That's something that you can you can actually go out and. Uh, and sell um in in ireland there like to be honest there's i think there's quite a good network right now for uh, uh for startups and stuff like that the thing is with ireland it's it's scale i think when i look at uh some of the the companies that are coming out of australia the the size of the companies that are coming out of australia are it's like it's almost punching above uh above your guys weight like from a population point of view like uh you've got canva um uh Atlassian, these big juggernaut, juggernauts of uh, of companies that are coming yeah. out of Australia, and I don't know, mate. Like, would we would we call Stripe? Would we call Intercom? Like, I think they're they're both massive yeah. behemoths. The as Stripe well. guys I mean, left and never came back. Actually, you know, a few mil. You're doing you're doing okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. Okay. Well. Okay. We. Okay. Touche on those two. Stripe's doing uh, quite well. We actually. I worked for a startup in Vancouver for a couple of years, and we were going to be the. This is when Stripe was just getting started, and we were going to be the the Canadian Stripe. Um, it did not uh, work out that way, but it was a it was a fun ride. It turns out Stripe is the Canadian Stripe. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's uh, pretty ubiquitous. Ubiquitous. Um. So it's it's pretty cool. So here's a question that I'd love to. I'd love to pick your brain on when you're say if you're starting a business or you're starting a bit like a, a SaaS business like this are you guys when you guys are getting going are you kind of planning about distribution at the beginning or is it kind of uh, a kind of uh, a serendipity like you said that uh, it's a good fit for, for stuff like HubSpot uh, and also like a platform like Salesforce I, I, do you have that in mind is that the the or is that something that later on we say okay we've got this product where's the best distribution channel for this how does that work in a in a strategy point of view? Uh, it's a great question, and it's one that I wish I had a perfectly clean answer to. I, I think like there's a famous line out there that first time founders spend all their time worrying about product, and second time founders spend all their time worrying about distribution, and it is for good reason. Right. Because distribution is really, really bloody hard, yeah. and uh, I think like there's actually like. So on our journey, like there's a few things that we sort of did that were not necessarily wrong, um, but like learning took us down paths that we didn't. We didn't. I think if you thought about it holistically, we we maybe would have still done the same thing, but it would have been good to have gone in with like eyes wide open. So for us, like early on in, in Quilla, like making a making a tool that allows you to build a web page really, really simply. With like you know drag and drop and click to type and, and and having a whole bunch of rules built in so that it always looks good whether it's on mobile or iPad or like all this sort of stuff like it's actually like a surprisingly hard thing to do. You would think like building a web page tool builder is is like not that challenging. Yeah. It's insanely challenging. And um, you know from our so when we sort of looked at that, another thing that's like very challenging in like sort of editor space is like collaborative editing. Um, there's a whole bunch of technical reasons but, but sort of having multiple people editing the same doc at the same time in different locations is like notoriously hard to get right from like a computational science um, perspective and so we look at these two parts and we're like we were lucky to have some like very good like people from, from google and microsoft who came and joined our team pretty early including some who'd like worked on google docs and things like that which google docs is a big hub in, in sydney at the time um and 
like even so we were like we can kind of pick one of these problems and so we picked making a beautiful 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 editor and i'm very happy we we did that path but it meant that it wasn't collaborative and so it was okay. single player only if you got single player only it means you kind of have to price yourself prosumer mm-hmm. we've like we've got a tool that's like great for like proposals quotes pitch decks presentations like yeah. we should be selling to sales teams but you you can't really because you you sort of have this product that is like really for like the s of the smb and so like you know for small you know for like you know in, in mark baker's world like small recruiting shops you know or like small agencies or um like we found like lots of interesting little niches and you know spaces where they can you know they can pay like 20 bucks a month or 50 bucks a month or whatever um and that, that wasn't necessarily like wrong but it did mean that that then pushed us down like you know you can't like outbound doesn't work at that price point like a whole bunch of channels don't work at that price point the ones that do were like seo and so we did like a lot of like seo landing pages and stuff like that and like mm-hmm. we tried some level of like lightweight paid social which made some things kind of work there back you know five years ago when facebook was still cheap yeah. or cheapish yeah. um and so you know there were sort of various things we sort of tried and figured out there but but i would say that as we've moved up market towards like you know from the s of the smb towards the m of the smb and now we're doing more and more like sort of like mid-market deals like you know 10, 20, 30K ACV deals. Mm-hmm. Like that mix of things has shifted and like how you think about like HubSpot as a channel has shifted quite a lot. How we think about like other partnerships as channels, how we think about outbound, how we think about all this sort of space in this mix um, kind of does change a lot. And I do think that like going in, we were like a lot of founders, we were like wonderfully optimistic and naive. And I think you kind of have to be a little bit to sometimes take on these big things um otherwise you might be terrified and never get started but i do wish we'd spent quite a bit more time being a bit more thoughtful about like how are we going to like get this out to this sort of this sort of this sort of next zone Mm -hmm. but then to argue against myself perhaps on the flip side you know if we'd done that we would have never gotten started and i think there is on the flip side there's a there's a guy this american investor called jason lempkin who's like found a couple of SaaS businesses and, you know, he's a sort of, you know, big figure in SaaS land. And he has this lovely, like this really wonderful framework, which is like, there is, who are you? Like, why should anyone buy software from you? Like, you're like some nobody, like, you know, blah, blah, blah. But if you can, you know, can you get 10 people who you've never met to buy your software? Like, no way, that's impossible. Like, that's completely absurd. But if you can get 10, you almost certainly can get 20. If you can get 20, you can probably get 50. And if you can get that, I mean, it sort of goes on and like the adjective gets easier and easier each time. And so like yeah. we're now at the stage where we're in the thousands and it's like, well, you know, you're in the thousands, you can definitely get to 10,000. I kind of feel more and more that way. Nice. Like just being like, you know, like we, we have got emotion, we can figure it out. And like, also like we have thousands of companies as customers. Nobody has heard of Quilla. Like we have a brand the size of like, you know, one micron, like it's this tiny little thing because the world is gigantic. Like HubSpot is like coming up on a hundred thousand customers. And yet there's like so much more opportunity that lies ahead. And so it's sort of the scale of the world is, is just massive. It's it's massive. And it's, it's something that while you were speaking there, I kind of was kind of realizing something as well. If so, there's the way of, so a friend of mine is, is, um, is building a, building an app for for HubSpot uh, for a very specific like it's a it's going to be a SaaS uh, business but pretty lightweight and it's going to be very um, uh, 
kind of one dimensional, but it will definitely it will fix a problem that that's there, right? And it's with distribution in mind. It's like okay, a lot of our customers need this in HubSpot. I'm going to build this exact product for that. Um, it's going to have some analytics and some cool stuff, but it's not going to be like a like a a, a huge big back kind of back end on it. Um, so, but the the issue is that he's building it directly for the what the platform is now, and it's it's there's a gap there that is really a lot smaller than what Quiller is uh, proposing. So uh, what I mean by that is HubSpot is always getting better. They're, you know, they're developing their, their platform. I think that HubSpot will, by the time he gets everything together, HubSpot will have that in the in the tool, right? So sometimes if you think too, too much along the lines of distribution through, say, one platform like that, they're going to be, uh, if it's only an incremental improvement, they might just do that themselves, and that's a huge risk. Um, but if you... Yeah. But if you're developing something like Quiller, like with a kind of open mindset at the beginning, um, there's going to be a huge gap there that, you know, HubSpot's not going to, it, it would be the resources needed to roll that out to 100,000 uh, kind of customers would be, it's just, the, there's a, a kind of a barrier to entry almost to to that uh, that type of business as well. So so there's some, I guess there's uh, pros and cons for uh, developing your business for um, for a particular distribution channel. So something something that i thought about there um but the so i know that you've just recently um even through the covid stuff you guys made a, a big um a, a big uh, round there of uh of investment what's the next steps for for quiller what are you going to do with the, the money that you guys uh raised is there is there kind of an area that you're going to be focusing on is it going to be on product development it's going to be territory development what do you think is the the next step for you guys Yeah, so I think um, it's a bit of a funny one because it is like it's, it's sort of we're investing it across like so many parts of our business. I mean, I think that the um, the money that we've raised, you know, will give us. So initially, we sort of thought it would give us like a, two years of runway. Mm-hmm. With COVID, we were like, eh, let's let's make sure it gives us somewhere closer to three. Although I will say, like. Uh, we're in a very good position at the moment, and we're sort of we're, we're growing. We had obviously a scary April, like everybody did, but um, but we're, we're having we've had to have a, a big resurgence since then. I think like HubSpot and others have, have seen similar yeah. um, sort of things as, as you have this this move towards um, remote work and, and much more digital first work. And I think it's just generally like from our point of view, like if you're not in the room at all, um, you know your sales collateral is the only thing. I mean, like obviously in a sales process, you, you attempt to have a champion throughout that process, but like other than the champion, you know, and to be honest, sales collateral helps the champion a lot. Um, but other than the champion, your sales collateral is the only thing doing the selling for you when you're not there. And I think to sort of, you know, sort of invest in that properly has been sort of quite meaningful. But, um, but look, for us, as far as like the investment goes, I mean, like, you know, we do have a big ambitious goal for us. Like we're not like, um, you know, we're going to find this clever little you know, niche thing here. We're like, no, no, we we fundamentally believe in 10 years time, it, people like will have moved from like the file-based version of documents to a, a much more web-first version of documents, but for, for all types. Yeah. And that like, when you think about like what you can do in that space and like, you know, for instance, like, you know, in B2B space, it's like, oh, you know, um, you know, you're setting up someone from the HubSpot setting up a proposal. It's like, oh well, you know, there's there's this and there's this and there's this. And I was like, customers like, oh well, I don't want that optional lecture, but I do want this one. And, and you've quoted me for for twelve seats, but actually now I want fourteen. 
Well, like with Quilla, those things are all can be adjustable. You can be like, oh, I want this. And that's a live update to the price in real time. You can accept, sign, and pay in real time. That'll sync back to HubSpot, mark the deals close, one update deal value. It'll ping the sales channels, like blah, 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 all this sort of stuff. And I think like, like having a big vision on that side is like scary and insane, but also is the one I think actually that does help sort of um, move things forward. But to have a vision like that, you do need to keep, to be frank, like spending money on, on hiring good yeah. people. And we've just hired um, one of like the heads of engineering at Atlassian um, who is uh, you know, was, was, was ran Confluence there, ran their growth team for a while. And so he's come on board and sort of, you know, he's going to continue building up the team there. We're obviously investing a lot in like sales and marketing and sort of spending more on that side. And so, you know, I think that, and the other thing that's sort of a truth with SaaS, it's like, you know, if you, once you know your economics in SaaS to some degree, you can say like, well, you know, let's say customers who spend a hundred bucks a month with us, you know, they might spend, you know, three years with us in total. So it's like, you know, $3,000, 600-ish, let's say, or three and a half grand worth of value. Yeah. If you acquire them for 500 bucks, like amazing, great. Like let's spend that money every day. Yeah. But you spent $500 at day zero, and they might, and then they pay you $100 a month. So it's like your cash flow is like screwed. Like mm-hmm. it's just SaaS sucks for cash flow. Yeah. And so, like, respected those who bootstrap, but like at a certain point, you know, you should be, even if you're not taking equity, you should at least be thinking about some level of financing, whether it's debt or whatever, to sort of keep that growth going. And I know HubSpot thinks about this in a very savvy way, as it's Salesforce or everybody else. But like, you know, you can just keep buying these annuities. And if you can buy an annuity that's going to pay out $3,000 for 500, well, do that every day of the week. Yeah. And so I think like, you know, part of it, the reality is sort of going towards that. But I think really, to be honest for us, so we just did our Series A and there's like a, a nice sort of story out there in, in sort of VC land, which is like um, uh, in seed investing, it's 90% love, 10% the numbers. Okay. At Series A, it's 50% the numbers, 50% love. But at Series B, it's 90% numbers, 10% love and so then you still need to like the company and like the founders and like who they are but it's like you know we need to be in a place where we can and we're like we're already there in some aspects mm-hmm. but we, you know we're, we're, we're a bit weaker in others where you can say hey we're going to put in this amount of money and that's going to generate this amount of leads and that's going to mean we're going to need to hire this number of sales reps and that's going to deploy you know blah 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 and like you can be like so this money in over here is going to lead to this money over here and kind of show that in a pretty convincing, clear structure because you, you're asking someone for like, I don't know, $20 million. Like yeah. You should have a pretty convincing, clear structure as to how it's going to work. Yeah. Um, and so I would say that like a big part of it, to be perfectly honest, is like sort of building out that machine and also like, you know, when we raised the round, we were like um, 25-ish people and we're now sort of 40, 45-ish people. And by the time the next round, maybe we're going to be more like, 80, but like you need to have like leaders and like managers and like, you yeah. know, and, and start to like build it, like professionalized groups and all that sort of stuff. And it, it's something uh, that leads to an interesting point as well. Like you mentioned before we started recording that the, a lot of the team is distributed. Is that on purpose or is that just because you found the best people, uh, you know, across the country that, you know, couldn't move for whatever reason and you kind of, you were okay with managing those guys at a distance because it seems like that was it was distributed before the COVID thing. Yeah, so we so we have a a bit of a funny structure. So we we 
So we're in Australia. Yeah. Uh, of the 20% of our revenue comes from Australia. Um, like the vast majority comes oh, from, really? obviously, the US is a huge one. You know, UK and Ireland and the Nordics, plus Netherlands is pretty big as well. Um, you know, Canada, blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, pretty early on, we were like, well, you want to have your team, your customer-facing team be where your customers are. And so, you know, across support, customer success, sales and marketing, you know, almost all of that team is remote because like they're, they're in the States, they're in Europe. Um, we've got a few in Manila. Um, not all of there's definitely some in Sydney as well, but it's like yeah. you kind of want that team to be sort of where they are. And we sort of relatively quickly, like initially just because we didn't have an office, we weren't going to open one and we were sort of, you know, we were going to hire like one and then another and then another. Like it wasn't like a sort of huge rush. We sort of did hire some people um, remotely and sort of thought maybe one day we'd have an office. We were very lucky to have a few people. So our head of support, Diana, among them, and our, our head of success, Chris, as well, who had like, worked for awesome remote-first companies for a while. Nice. And so they just brought in this amazing culture of like, why do you need an office? Like, why do you need this? How, how do you think about this sort of stuff? And that it sort of pushes you remote when done well, which like... I think we're good. I genuinely think we're, we're good to very good, but there's like, I think just as a society, very few, if maybe like no companies are truly excellent at it yet. Cause I think we're still sort of figuring out a lot of stuff. Um, but like, you know, it's much more about what are your goals and what does like on an outcomes basis, like what does good work look like? And like for some things like sales, that's gloriously straightforward. It's like, yeah. here is your quota. And if you hit it, I am, I don't, I, I, could care less if you're at the pub at 2 p.m. on a Friday or if you're going for a surf at 11 a.m. on a Thursday. Like, I, yeah. I, I just, I don't care. Like, it's, do you hit your numbers or don't you? Yeah. And similar with, with support, like, you know, do you do you have great customer ratings? Are you replying at a good, you know, generally a good cadence and blah, 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 blah. It's all pretty straightforward. But like you sort of get to that point being like, here's what matters. Here's how I'm going to measure it. Here's how we're going to have our regular cadence to touch base on things. Yeah. Um, and on the flip side, though, all of our product and design team is in Sydney. Okay, so that's so, sort of the, so, the heart so, of the so, business. So product and engineering yeah. and design, like they all have a hub here. Now with COVID, that team is effectively remote. Yeah. Um, but like, but, but there is something nice, I think, especially when you're working on complex product problems in like being in a room with a whiteboard. Like it's still pretty nice sometimes. Yeah. And so I think that... Um, we haven't, so not we. It's not all of our team on the product side is 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 in Sydney, but but the vast vast majority is, and I think that that'll probably continue to some degree. Um, so yeah, I don't know. We've sort of had this bit of a hybrid one. We've sort of made it work. Yeah. Mark, sorry, just, sorry, just a question from my uh, from me. Um, what parts of the business do you think work best remotely? And I know you said the. You kind of went into it there, but like for for companies that have gone remote now and aren't you are just getting used to it, and you've been doing it for a while, and some of your staff have been doing it for years, probably. What areas of businesses that you can apply to general business work best remotely, and, and others that don't? Yeah, so I think um, I think anything that is relatively straightforward to track and measure is like very, very, very easy to, to sort of go and do remote straight away. Because I think that the part that, and so if you sort of go back to the Quiller analogy, um, like the part that is like creative work, 
like solving complex product problems. Like, so like if we have a team working on something to do with like, I don't know, making some part of the editor a better user experience, you can have measurable outcomes out of that to some degree. Like, you know, maybe you might measure like first user activation rate, or I, I don't know, you might have like various things you might do or like usage numbers, but like, it's also a bit like mm, hand wavy about various things. And I think creative work is, is often, um, it can be a little harder to measure, but anything that is like, you know, sales, customer success, support, finance, a lot of operational stuff, um, legal, uh, where it's just like, hey, did we, did, was outcome X achieved uh, or did we do activity X, Y, Z or whatever? Um, those are all very sort of like really pretty easy. And the important thing you have to do is just be like, here is my expectation on this side. Like here is what good looks like. You know, how do we sort of think about that? And then within that space, um, he said, we're going to measure it. He said, we're going to track it. <laughs> Excuse me, not COVID. Okay. Uh, have been swabbed. Uh, my, my wife is a, is a GP, so I've, I've, nice. I've been ruthlessly swabbed all the time. Anyway, um, <laughs> but like, you know, I think you, once you're sort of clear with, with what that looks like, it's actually pretty, I think, pretty good to go. The, the big thing I would say is like that a lot of sales team, and actually I was speaking to a sales team tomorrow uh, about this. A lot of sales teams struggle with it is like, you do lose a lot by being in the same room. Like, and so I, I, I live for sales, like sales is what I do. Um, and like sales team in the same room is like awesome. There's just like good energy. There's banter. Like there's a bit of collaboration. There's a bit of competition. There's also, you know, I think as a sales leader, you get to like over here, uh, you know, I think things that are going on. So you get to feel for like, you know, how's the market going or this keeps being a problem or whatever else. You also get to over here, like, man, that, that SDR really stuffed at that call. I need to have some, do some ad hoc coaching with them or whatever else. And I think like for us, so when we started this, like we like everybody else, we sucked. Like, we did a whole bunch of stuff that was stupid and wrong and sort of didn't quite sit right. But like the thing that we found, um, the framework that I think like worked best for us was to start from the promise of like, don't pretend that remote doesn't come with costs. It comes with like real costs, but just be like explicit as to what yeah. they are. And so like, if I think about like what you lose with regards to sales teams, like you lose like a bit of the, a bit of the banter, a bit of the camaraderie, like that sort of, you know, social aspect, which I think sales teams thrive off. You lose coaching quite a lot. Mm. Um, and, and you lose, like, I mean, it's a, we can sort of go down a longer list here. But I think that like, you know, so, so I think how do you become a bit more intentional about like camaraderie and like celebration and all that sort of stuff. And you can definitely do that remote. It's a bit, it's not quite the same, but you can definitely do it. And on the coaching side, like the, the best thing we did was just as part of everyone's activity tracking for the week, everyone has to include ride-alongs and be like, you have to every single week either have someone join your call or join someone else's call and just sit there and you have a little meeting beforehand and like, hey, what's the goal for this call? What's going on? The whole call, unless it bloody it goes off the rails, you, you shouldn't say anything. Like sometimes you could jump in and, and save them or help a little bit. But like generally speaking, you're just sitting there, you're watching, you're taking notes. And in the call, you have a little moment being like, hey, Mark, I thought you handled that section really well. Like, I'm actually going to steal that when I do that. I have such a clever way of deflecting that question. Or, hey, um, but, you know, when they ask this thing, um, you know, 
you did this answer. I actually find that like when I get that, when I try to answer it this way and blah, blah. And also sometimes they'll catch a little thing like, oh, and they also, this woman asked you this question, which you didn't really answer. So maybe when you follow up, be sure to mention that. Both parties, like if you're, you're having like one-on-one -on -one coaching with someone. So if you're being coached, you get like, like a lot of value out of that. But actually it's even more value in being the, 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 being the coach, like being the teacher, because you get to sit there and be like, huh, that's not going well. I can kind of see why I definitely do that myself and all this sort of stuff. And I think, so look, again, that's like one aspect, but I think like when we went through, I'm like, what are we losing um, out of this process? And we sort of caught a few things and we're like, how do you, how do you make that work in remote? And actually that's way better than what we were doing when everyone was in the room and we were just like, oh, like I can do coaching ad hoc. I'll just hear a bad sales call. I'll, I'll get pulled into a meeting or whatever. And like actually being intentional about it has led to a better outcome. So I think to really make remote work, like you sort of need to do that. And, and I think also, I swear I'm really done. But the other, other final level that we still are not that good at, but I can see a path as being better at is like, Zoom calls, much as I love you guys, and this has been a delight, uh, but Zoom calls are like pretty draining. And a lot of time with companies that are early to remote, it's like the first answer is like, let's have another Zoom call. Yeah. And actually that's not the path. The path is asynchronous stuff. And so now if someone wants to set up a meeting, the first thing everyone tries to do is push back and be like, can you write it up in the doc or can you record a little five minute Loom video? And if you guys don't know Loom, it's this little video recording tool. They're close friends of us at Quilla, like they're awesome you can record a quick little video, either screen share or not or whatever, but it's just like often, and then over the next 24 hours, you know, you send it around, people will watch it in their own time. They might respond with a video or, or yes, no, or whatever. But um, I think like that asynchronous path as well, in terms of like, rather than like always needing everyone to be in the same room at the same time, like that, that's like the next level, I think, that, that really allows you to do cool stuff. And obviously Quilla can play a role in that too. I love that as well, because the first like in april when everything got shut down here in ireland the, the i think i was in zoom calls kind of all the time i was almost just kind of like just clicking into the next link um but now yeah. we've, we've tried to move a little bit more i know i have anyway with my uh with my team and my partners where every every if we're going to have a zoom meeting it, these these are the outcomes that we need to come to by the end of it before we uh actually <laughs> hang in and i know uh, all these books all the books i've read all over the years on management all that type of stuff they're like oh, make sure you have an agenda but, it's so many people don't have an agenda at all when they do meetings and it's just it's easy to kind of uh lose a little bit of um a little bit of quality of the meeting when you do that uh i know we are really uh pushing the time here i know we're trying, trying to get you um uh off home i know it's it's almost i don't know it's six o'clock or something in uh in sydney at this stage um it so is I, i'm good to go for a little bit longer but but yeah i, I do have yeah. a, a toddler at home at some stage who will be Right. desperate for a hang <laughs> yeah okay um and i've got it's closing day here in europe and it's about 9 a.m so i gotta get out there and try to get some get some deals in here mark but we've got uh mark and uh, just to, just to say mark luke luke also com completed an iron man yesterday so uh oh. yeah that's that's you why, wouldn't think it that's why my face is kind of weather beaten right now i've been out in the wind <laughs> and uh the sun and all that type of stuff so i'm a, I've, I've got three hey, you're standing yeah, that's like you're the only one on this call who's standing up. It's just yeah. amazing. That's bravo, congratulations. Exactly, and yeah. you're slightly insane. Yeah, a little bit insane. I've had three cups of coffee just to get going for this at eight a.m. Um, so, Mark, uh, Mark Tanner, we have this little, we have a bit of a. Um, 
a uh, a tradition here on the on the shark pod uh, mark baker will come at you with some uh, some lightning round questions we're going to have a, a slightly curtailed version uh, today <laughs> where uh, mark's going to pick uh, or mark baker's going to pick his uh, his absolute favorites and uh, we're going to or run through this they don't have to be short answers but we're just going to try to hit you with some uh questions here so that's okay right okay um if you could do business anywhere in the world wherever it be right now uh literally right now we've been sydney australia friends family low covid like we're coming into springtime it's glorious i think like sydney's built a nice tech ecosystem um it'd be interesting to see what happens longer term but i'll tell you where it's not Probably not America, which is a thing that I would have had given you a very different answer six months ago. Interesting. Yeah. How much money is enough money? It's a great question. I think that there's one of my big fears. That's stupid. I shouldn't phrase it that way. But but a fear that I have is about like just internal, like like inflation, like inflation of expectations. Like people being like, "This will be enough money," and you get there, and like, "No, it's not. I need more. I need more. I need more." I think. Um, yeah, I read a book recently that sort of said it encouraged founders to sort of aim for a hundred million because that was where true financial freedom came. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know, man. I think ten probably probably heaps. Yeah. Um, I think I think there is. I wouldn't be lying if I said that you know one of my goals of, of having a startup to some degree is like is financial independence. And I do think that if you can be lucky enough to have a house in a part of the world that you love living in, um, that, that is enough for you and your family to live in. And then you can have, you know, uh, you know, uh, some money put away for retirement, um, and you can have, let's say, a, a million or, or 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 a bit more, sort of sitting in a bank that you can do stuff with. That's pretty great. Do you know what I mean? Like whether you're starting a business, or you're just investing in it, or you're who the hell knows. But I think that's sort of like that threshold. Um, assuming you're healthy and you have good insurance and blah blah, blah like kind of that's like a really great level of financial freedom. Um, that comes there, so we'll we'll, yeah. we'll we'll see. I'm sure I'll become some. I, I think it's I think it's quite challenging for humans to not have some degree of inflation of expectation go. Yeah. And even like as you do well in life, you tend to move to a bit of a nicer suburb, and then you're like, why is everyone else driving Audis and BMWs? And then <laughs> you know, like instead of you know, continually yeah. sort of goes on. Yeah. And I really like that answer as well because you actually kind of broke down almost like a lifestyle design around that, where it's not really it's what what the money can buy for you. It's uh, a great place to live for your for your family. Um, having stuff like insurance that you don't have to worry about, um, and then having a little bit of having a million of uh, in cash in the bank. Hey, uh, you know, hey, hurt have anything. some stuff to have, have yeah. some fun. You know, your, yeah. your friend says, "Oh, let's go and let's go to Ireland and hang out for a week," and you're like, yeah. "Sure." Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Mark, what do you think? Last one. Yeah, no, I fully agree. And yeah. I think it's important for people to actually have something to work towards, even if that is a big, that is quite a huge goal to have, but it's something to work towards as opposed to just every day feeling like, you know, they need just need to work harder in general. You know, yeah. that could be quite stressful. Yeah. Um, huh, the next question was, what do you fear? But we kind of, we've answered that. Uh, um, is it is it who you know or is it what you know? I'm going to be a bastard and reframe both of them into the way that I that I would like. Go for it. Um, I think so. Something that I've been thinking about a lot is like so. I've got a, a two year old, and um, 
one of the things, like something I've been thinking a little bit is like, what do you want to teach a child? Like, what are the actual things that matter? And I think like something that stuck with me, there's this essay I, I read this from like a bajillion years ago. It's like someone writing in the 1500s, but, um, but it was an essay about like, you know, if you can teach your child to make friendships, like they have like this, this skill, after that, you know, so how do you think that? But I actually think like in the context of like what you know, there's this really important thing about um, about like a growth mindset or a learning mindset where it's just like if you if you have a thing where like, you know, you, you think about things in terms of like, oh, I'm dumb at maths, but I'm smart at geography or I'm, you know, vice versa or whatever. Like you, you sort of you sort of actually deny yourself a whole bunch of possibilities where if you sort of like if you have a belief that like some things might come to me easier, some things might come to me harder, but I actually it's possible for me to learn anything. Um if you have that sort of view of like, you know, it might be really hard, but I, I'm not a computer programmer, but I feel very confident if I dedicated myself to that for a year or two or whatever, like I'd be able to become quite good at that. And I think that like having that mindset actually opens so many doors because nothing is, nothing is sort of shut to you. And I think on a similar one with, with the who you know one, I think that one of the great bits of advice I got from my dad early on is he's like, he said to me, most people love being asked for advice. You know, most people find it deeply flattering to be asked for advice by someone, especially if you're like, you know, I don't want to like two men at home, but like, you know, someone like an up and comer like, you know, founder or whatever, like to go to, someone and, to go to someone and ask for advice is to say to them, I value you and I think you're intelligent and I think you are worthwhile and you have real things to add here. And like no human being like, it's like that's a great feeling but it's like yeah, yeah i'm being validated you know i think that and so i think that once you sort of get through that and obviously you need to ask it in the right way and treat people with respect and understand how to do it but once you do that i do think that like again that can open a whole host of doors for you towards like you know it's not gonna open it not everybody will want to do it or whatever else but i do think that um you know, it, both of those things, if you can have a good way to sort of, you know, operate across both of them and sort of realize that you probably can start a conversation with that person. And also maybe you need to pick five people and you reach out to all five and you know you're probably going to get two of them, you know, to some degree. But I think that um, across both of them, if you can make both those work well. If I had to pick one, I'd say it's probably what you know um, versus who you know, but they're so important and there's so much luck that comes from weird serendipitous things and... Right. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a yeah. it's a great answer. I think this this question we've asked this to I guess almost thirty people now, something like that, and everyone has a, a different a different kind of take on it. Uh, we've had mm. we had the guy uh, from the Dublin Chamber, um, who uh, a Dublin Chamber of Commerce. I think it's actually called the Dublin Chamber now. But he was saying uh, it's it's different. He said uh, it's who knows you. It's like if you can be doing stuff where people where people will. Uh, sure. recognize you and then opportunities kind of come out of that you know so you got to know how to do stuff so you get a little bit of notoriety and that should be the the goal but uh yeah probably gets the most interesting answers i think out of all the questions right two 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 quick final ones okay if if you could advise anybody to learn one skill what would it be learn how to learn just to reiterate the previous one and i really think that like um the not to go all like meta political, but there's like there's a big debate in Australia about like vocational learning versus the humanities. Mm-hmm. And like I did, you know, history and politics and stuff like this and philosophy. But like I, I truly believe that like that old school thing of 
learning how to learn, learning how to think, learning how to research, learning how to make arguments, like whether it's through essays or debating, or it doesn't matter what format it's in, but it matters that you can think through both sides of an argument and like learn how to learn. I think that's like the meta skill that allows you to sort of, you know, go past that. And like they're definitely, and the thing that is not obvious is that there are better ways to learn. Like we, we all sort of think that like, oh, I, I, I went to school, like I know how to learn stuff. It's like, no, no, you suck at learning. Like there are athletes at learning and you can become better at it. Yeah. I was actually, I was having a, a conversation with Mark, uh, Mark's wife, uh, my sister, uh, uh, the other day about that because they're, uh, they're uh, raising children as well and they're, we're talking about uh, learning languages and stuff. And uh, my sister was saying that, um, you know, children are better, but actually the statistics are that uh, like adults are better at, at the actual learning part but they just don't know how to they're not doing what kids are doing they're not uh making lots of mistakes they're not putting themselves out there they're not just trying to communicate they're trying to get it right they they if they get it wrong they feel shame all that type of stuff so th- if you knew how to learn you can learn a lot quicker than uh you know like maybe a toddler <laughs> but <laughs> i know that shouldn't be the goal just to, to be the to- okay uh, mark okay last one uh mark Beggar. okay last one if you could recommend one book to the 18 year old mark what would it be it doesn't have to be a business book it could be something that you know. yeah it's a really it's a really tough question i um i am going to this book's a little top of mind because i was talking about it with a friend yesterday so so it's a bit of a cheat but i i think it's a meaningful one um there's this book out there by um, Clay Christensen, who, who's the father of like disruption theory and, and also jobs to be done and other things like that, or one of the fathers of jobs to be done. Um, and he actually passed away um, in the past year or so. Um, but he has this book called How Will You Measure Your Life? And so he was a Harvard, so, you know, Harvard Business School, like an MBA program. He was one of the lecturers there. And he had this course, um, this course, this book sort of came out of a course he took there, which was like a very popular course. And, you know, at the start of the course, he sort of asks, how will you know at the end of your life whether you've lived a good life? And, um, you know, what, what will you have wanted to have achieved and, and sort of, you know, all this sort of stuff. And, you know, you get a whole, it's Harvard MBA. You get a whole bunch of like hyper career like answers, but you also get, you know, I have a good relationship with my spouse. I have a good relationship with my kids. I'm still close to my family. I'm in my community. I'm like, you know, part of my, my football club or my church or my like whatever it is that's meaningful to you. Um, and he then goes through and goes, okay, cool. So as Harvard MBA grads, just so you know, uh, Harvard MBA grads, not just MBA grads, Harvard MBA grads have a seven times higher divorce rate than the national average. What? It's amazing. It's like, it's like a, there is a 20 times higher than the national average chance that you will not be on speaking terms with your children at age 50. That's now, like, obviously like 20 times a low number is a low number, but it's yeah. like, it's like it's all these sort of things and then sort of pivots to be like a lot of what we talk about in 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 management philosophy you know one of one of many you know big theories but a big theory is about like return on invested um capital you know the investment you make and the return you get are often correlated Mm -hmm. if you go through and you spend like 80 hours a week on your career and five hours a week on your you know spouse and no hours a week on your community yeah well like how do you in, and, and or, or, or no hours a week on your kids how do you envisage that that investment paying off for you like how do you and so it's like 
you may choose, you may like be like, I don't give a shit. I want the career. Like, great. But, but be active in your choice. And if you sort of think about it, it's this nice framework of like um, uh, the eulogy versus the CV. It's like there are certain things you do in life that look great on a CV, but no one would ever mention at the end, you know, in the yeah. eulogy, where there are other things in life that like you, you would be completely irrelevant and weird on a CV, but like actually what matters if, if you were thinking about how you would want people to remember you. Yeah. And I think that book had a huge impact on me. You know, I think like as a founder, like what do I want to get out of this business? Like I've, obviously I'm, I would like a financial return. I like financial stability. We talk about all this sort of stuff. I also want that for like my team. Um, and I want that for want that for my investors or just other people on my journey. I also want like my customers and like my partners at HubSpot. I want us like I want to have like a good time. Like I don't want us to be an asshole company that like creates negative vibes out there. It's like yeah. I'm only get one sort of time. You know, I sort of think like that's been just a good book to sort of. I also, but it also means like I'm going to hang up this call, which I've really enjoyed having with you guys. And I hope if you're still listening at this point, bravo! Got the end of the podcast, but like you know, I really. I'm going to go home and I'm going to enjoy hanging out with my two-year-old, yeah. you know, and spending time with him because, like, that's a relationship I want to invest in a heap now. A, it's a pleasure right now, mostly. And sometimes he's a little yeah. monster, <laughs> yeah. but um, but you know, I think I think um, you know, I think I think you know that and with my wife and all that sort of stuff because I know that these relationships I want to have and be in a good place for the rest of my life. And I think that is great advice to end the podcast on. Mark Tanner from live from Sydney. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and we'll we'll let you know when this is this is up. It's probably going to be the following Wednesday or something like that. But uh, it was great, great, great. chat. And uh, thanks very much. Talk thanks, to you, mate. Mike.